The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me in your Bibles or on your app to Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Philippians is in between Ephesians and Colossians and will be found in the back third of your Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible of your own and you want one, we have those. Just ask an usher uh, after service or somebody back in the lounge. They'll be happy to give you one. We've got those for free. Uh, If you don't happen to have a Bible or an app with you today, uh, we'll have the verses up on the screen. So you can follow along that way or you can just listen as we read God's word together. Okay, we are continuing this week in our series. It's called Joy, A Journey Through Philippians. Uh, And we are going verse by verse through this powerful book of the Bible. This book was written as a pastoral letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Now, last week we learned uh, the beautiful distinction of working out our salvation instead of working for our salvation. We saw that we can only work out our salvation with fear and trembling uh, because Jesus is working in us. This week, we are going to get a glimpse of how the gospel affects the way we relate to each other as Paul discusses uh, his relationship with and the character of two brothers in the faith. Okay? So we're in Philippians. uh, We're in chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 19. Okay? Here we go. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you uh, all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Praise God for his word. Uh, So we're going to go back through and we'll just work through these verses together, okay? So verses 19 through 21 Uh, These verses reveal one effect the gospel has on those who are changed by its power. Uh, Those who are transformed by the gospel truly love other people. How do we see that in verses 19 through 21? Well, first of all, Timothy, we know this from these verses, but also throughout the New Testament, Timothy is mentioned. He is one of Paul's closest friends. Uh, He's someone that he traveled all over the ancient world with. They preached the gospel, planted churches. Uh, We see him kind of hold Timothy out and above even everyone else that's been Paul's companion. He's like, this is one of the only guys I can count on. Uh, And so that's true. Uh, We see the love Paul has for the Philippians in that he wants to send Timothy to them. This is a very important guy to him. Paul's in jail for the faith. 
looking potentially at a death sentence. He's got one guy with him he can really count on. His love for the Philippians is so great, he's going to send that one guy that's of great comfort to him, and he desires to do it. Um, we also see that Timothy loves the Philippian church as well from these verses, 19 through 21. Uh, it sounds from here like Paul has one guy he can count on, but he so desires to have news of this church that he is willing to risk sending him. The trip from where he is to Philippi could take from three weeks to three months, depending on the season uh, and conditions. And, and the reality is traveling was always inherently dangerous at that time. So we think, hey, you know what? I want to tour the national parks on the West Coast. So we hop in our air-conditioned car, right, and off we go. And, and every 14 miles, there's a, a Love's truck stop where we can stop and get a chocolate milk if we want and maybe a slice of pizza out of that little nasty roller grill thing they got going on, right? We, we, we don't think of travel. Like, like, this is a real big deal for them, okay? Uh, this, is, this is probably walking, most of it, or uh, getting on a rickety boat, right, and being kind of at the mercy of, of the seas and, and all of that. And that's gone bad for Paul before, right? Shipwrecked many times in, in his missions uh, to plant churches and preach the gospel. So super dangerous even to send this guy that he loves a lot. But, but that, it shows you how desperately he desired to have connection with and news from this church in Philippi. And so uh, you, you could kind of glance over that, like, okay, he's talking about sending Timothy. This kind of seems like just some personal notes at the end of this chapter, but there's really, we learn a lot from this. We learn about the love that these men had for each other uh, as brothers in the faith, as, as fellow workmen for the gospel, but also the love that they had, the risk they were willing to take for this church, this body they loved uh, of people uh, in Philippi. So that's, that's a big deal. Um, so why does this, I guess you could ask this question, and I hope you are thinking about it. Why does this prove that Paul and Timothy love the Philippians? What, what, everything I just said to you, why, why is what we're drawing from these first few verses that, that this displays or proves in a tangible way that these guys really love the Philippians? Well, to, to talk through that, I, I want to read you a quote from a, a modern philosopher who I think has one of the most biblical and easily understandable definitions of love that I've ever heard. Okay, here's, here's the quote. Love is putting someone else's needs before yours. That quote from that modern philosopher, that's actually Olaf the Snowman from the movie Frozen. All right, that's the modern philosopher. Now, I'm not typically um, big on movie quotes, but honestly, there's, there's some really profound truth in those, in those simple words. And, and why, so if I'm trying to prove to you that these three verses show an incredible love between Paul and Timothy and the Philippian Christians, why would I take the risk of, of telling you that movie quote? Well, because Olaf says love is putting someone else's needs before yours, okay? I, I contend that the Bible, the New Testament specifically, points us in the exact same direction in trying to understand what love is, right? Because if you go to 1 John 3, 16, what does it say? It says, by this we know love, that he, that being Jesus, laid down his life for us. And so what do we see there? We see sacrifice of the highest caliber. We see Jesus, King Jesus, the glorious one, considering our needs more important than his, laying himself down so that the very ones that were the cause of the need for him to go to the cross could benefit from his sacrifice. And so when, when we're given this this option, uh, this, this kind of 
these, these trail markers to begin to discover what it is love really is, 1 John 3.16 tells us to look at the cross. And I believe what we see there is someone putting someone else's needs above their own. You see a lot of things. It's, it's multifaceted, and it's, there, there's, we, we could talk forever about the rest of what's there, but, but, but you see very vibrantly and right up in the front, sacrifice and putting someone else's needs in front of your own. This is what we see from these brothers. It would have been much better for Paul to keep Timothy there. It would have been much better for Timothy not to take the risk of the trip. But both of them love these Philippian Christians so much that they're willing to risk all that. And uh, I think part of that, and, and we'll get into this more, is, is because these guys truly, really belong to Jesus. That's, that's the only way you can really get to the point, I believe, with, with pure motives of beginning to desire to put other people in front of yourself, to, to really, care, really care more about someone else's needs than your own in, in, a, in a really pure way is by the Spirit of Christ being at work in you. So we'll, we'll work on that more. Um, let's, let's look at verse 22. So that's verses 19 through 21. Verse 22 says this, But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. So we see here that the gospel causes God's people to love each other as a family. Specifically, there is something to this idea of men of God being fathers in the faith. Just run down this trail with me for a second. First of all, I will call your attention to the prophet Malachi. When he's right at the end, this is the end of the Old Testament, this, the, the, the very last verse of the Old Testament, if I'm not mistaken. When he's speaking of John the Baptist, who, who we know came in the spirit of Elijah, right? Um, and, and John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus' public ministry. This is what the prophet Malachi said about him and looking forward to John the Baptist coming. Okay, this is Malachi 4.6. This is what he said about John the Baptist. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Why is it of all the things Malachi could say about this, this guy, John the Baptist, that was going to come prepare the way for Jesus and his ministry, that what he was going to do was restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers? Paul also instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 to relate to older men in the church as fathers. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. The point here, one of the points, is that the scarlet thread of the gospel binds us together much more than biology ever could. The blood of Christ creates an eternal family that will far outlast families that originate by human bloodlines. Also, if God is conforming us to the image of Christ, you guys know that's true, right? Romans 8, 29. Part of what God is doing in us is conforming us to the image of Christ. And he, according to Hebrews and other places, is the exact representation of the love and character of the Father, right? God is making us look more like Christ. Christ looks exactly like the Father. Part of what he did is come to reveal the love and character and depth and beauty of, of who God is, right? So if that's true, then more and more men of God should love the church like a good dad, not just like a tutor. Now, what's the difference? 
I want to make sure for those of you that are tutors in here, not to degrade what you do. Tutoring is a, is a beautiful thing, and that's awesome, but it's different than being a dad. You understand? Some translations will say you have tons of teachers, but you have not many fathers, right? Uh, a tutor typically is paid to do what they do. They have a relationship. they got to teach some subject to a student, uh, and that's kind of the, the end of the exchange. Not to say the tutor doesn't care for them in a broader sense, but not like a dad does. Right, but there's something there's something to this. There's there's some reason why what's mentioned as John the Baptist is coming to prepare the way for Jesus. What's going to happen in the hearts of people is that the hearts of the children are going to be returned to the fathers, and the hearts of the fathers are going to be returned to the children. There's some reason why Paul says, you know what? What's going to happen is uh, in churches and, and in the body of Christ, you're going to have a bunch of people that want to be teachers. Right? They want to have kind of an arm's length relationship with people. They want to be able to tell people what what to do and maybe teach them, but they're they're maybe not going to want to pay the price to get in there and love them and protect them and serve them and be with them with the closeness and love and the passionate, that, like that, that kind of ferocious, tenacious love that a father, a good father, has for his kids. And apparently what we need is more fathers. We need fathers by the Spirit of God. What, what do we see from this? Every man of God should love, submit to, and humbly learn from gospel fathers. I don't care where you're at in your walk with Christ. To some degree, as long as you live, you should be in the position of Timothy with somebody who you are honoring and respecting as a father in the faith. You never get past that point. However, every man of God should be learning how to love and teach and protect others as a gospel father. Now, some of you, it's very easy for you to see yourself as a Timothy. Some of you maybe see yourself beyond what we're, the, the position of a Timothy in this situation, you got to humble yourself and realize you never get out of that. There's always learning to do. There's always uh, humble service that we should find ourselves in. We should find those that have gone before us in the faith and, and, and people that can speak into our lives, and especially kind of as a father can, somebody that can, that can kind of, uh, by their word, we're going to chill out and, and think about it, right? Like everybody should have someone in their life that if they come up and said, hey, I, th- I think you're in error about this thing. Uh, it should cause you to stop, slow down, and really consider right, right away. Uh, everybody should have somebody that, that has a Bible in their hand and that they know really loves them and has that fatherly anointing in their life. However, uh, my challenge to you, men of God, is if God is continually conforming you to the image of Christ, and Christ is the exact representation of God the Father, then to some degree there should be cultivating in you this, this kind of fatherly responsibility and love. And, and, and this doesn't mean, this is not only if you have biological children, right? This, Timothy, <laughs> Timothy was not Paul's son, right? And so there's this idea that the gospel expands the ability of people to love in a really profound way and love uh, in, in ways that uh, we, we can't do without the power of God, right? Because it's, let, let's be honest, it's difficult to father your own children, to love and protect and, and, and teach and train and provide for your own kids. But what, what the call of God here is, I believe, is that every single man of God should be looking to love and protect and provide for and teach other men of God, well, I just got saved. All right, I got that. Maybe you just became a Christian. I'm at least setting the bar for you. 
I believe if God is messing in your life, if God is shaping and forming you, if he's doing something in you, man of God, more and more you should think like a father and not a child. Is he conforming us in the image of his son? He is, isn't he? Does the son look like the father? Yes, he does. Part of how gospel fathers love the church is they let people serve with them instead of trying to get people to just serve them. It is clear that Timothy did help and serve Paul faithfully. All through the New Testament, you see that. But Paul made sure to treat Timothy the same way God treats all of us. God calls upon us to serve him. God's call upon us to serve him is unable to be argued. But how is it that we serve him? What does that look like, right? Well, I think Jesus made it very clear. First of all, when, when questioned about what the greatest commandment was, what did Jesus say? He said, well, we got to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength, and we got to love others. we got to love people, <clears throat> right? So part of how we serve God is to love him and to love others. The last thing Jesus said to his men before he ascended into heaven is to go into all the world and make disciples. And so by loving God, loving people, and making disciples, these are the primary objectives we were given by God and how to serve him. So what does that look like? Does, it, is, does, does God want us all day long just to, just to sing to him, just to burn incense to him, just to wait on him hand and foot? Well, no, because he's God and doesn't need any of that. But really, what it really looks like is we serve God by joining him in his mission to redeem and rescue people from sin and death. And so God doesn't in serving God, we are, as much as serving him, we are serving with him. And we see that language right here. Uh, it says, but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. And so some people, this, this is difficult language for us today because we are very individualistic. And, and, and a lot of people are like, I'm not serving anybody like a child serves his father because I'm an, I'm an American. You know what I mean? It's me. Me and me. Right? First of all, uh, we shouldn't struggle as much with that as we do. The humility that comes in knowing Christ and, and the Spirit of God working in us should make it a joy for us to serve others and, and, and not a burden. But secondly, to understand what that looks like, because sometimes that gets abused. There are a bunch of so-called Christian leaders that are more like tutors and not like fathers. They don't really love the people. They're just seeing what they can get out of the people. Uh, the Bible calls them false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and, and one of the marks of that, the way you can tell, is if, if you've got somebody that's standing up and telling everyone how they should serve them, well, I'm, I'm the man of God, so, so serve me. I'm, I'm, I'm the man of God. I'm God's anointed, this type of language. And so everybody should, should wait on me hand and foot. And I shouldn't have to ever carry something or think about something. Or, you know, and everybody should make sure, you know, all I ever do is, is read the Bible and pray. Yes, I understand in the book of Acts that some guys appointed some other guys to, to wait tables so that they could attend, attend to the word of God in prayer. But that doesn't mean that was all they ever did. A true gospel father is going to invite people to work with them in gospel mission, not work for them or serve them. They're going to be serving God with them together. Uh, and, and that's the way God does it with us, right? He invites us to take part in his mission, to, to be a part of what he's doing in the earth, which is incredible. I often wonder why. 
he would invite us into that, right? It just seems like there's so many easier ways to get it done because of our frailties and because of our propensities for sin and distraction. It seems like getting gospel mission done would have been easier with, with, with maybe a different army than us. You guys self-aware enough to say I'm in that and yes, I agree? Yeah, man, like you, you would have thought, like, like maybe angels, let the angels do that one. They seem to typically be more obedient than we are, right? Except for that whole thing in the beginning. But, but the ones that stuck around, seems like they're, they're doing pretty good and they, they pretty much listen. We tend to not do that. However, God in his, in his infinite wisdom and the beauty of the design of the way he set this thing up, he's pulled us in as sons and daughters to work with him uh, on his mission of letting people know there's hope in this life and for eternity through Christ. And so um, if, 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 if what's been said today, if you're a man of God and, and, and you, you feel a stirring, that, that call to be a gospel father, you, you get it, you understand what I'm saying, and you know, yep, you know what, that's right. Part of how you do that, part of what that looks like is for you not to uh, find people that you can order around but it's to find people that you can invite along with you as you serve Jesus and pour your life out for his sake, all right? Find some people you can invite along as you give it everything you've got uh, to make much of Jesus, okay? Um, this principle of gospel family also translates to all of you women of God as well. Uh, the church does need gospel fathers, desperately, uh, but we are also desperate for anointed, sacrificial, and loving gospel mothers. Um, there, there is an anointing and there is, there is a place that a mama has uh, in, in somebody's life that, that, that a father can't fulfill. And so we need everybody. You know, maybe, maybe this is weird to you. Maybe you're like, what? Why, why would I want to be a gospel father or a gospel mother? If you don't get it, I'm, I'm just going to ask you to pray. Ask God to help you understand why it seems to be in his heart that we would have more gospel fathers and more gospel mothers. And ask what that looks like. Think about it. What, is it. what does it look like if I was to look at the church like a mother or like a father would? If I was to love people the way a godly mother or a godly father would love people, what's that going to mean for the way I go about things, the way I treat people, the way I see people? Also, I would, I would just lovingly suggest to you single ladies when you're assessing if a man is someone that you can trust to love and lead your family, ask yourself, does he act more like a father or like a child? It's a good assessment question. No amens? Okay. I saw some squirming. I don't know if that's... Is that, is that an, an amen in Ohio? I don't know. Okay. We'll keep going. We're having fun. <clears throat> Uh, all right, that brings us to verse 23 and 24, okay? Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, still talking about Timothy, and as soon as, I, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, he says, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Remember, Paul is still awaiting here uh, either trial or sentencing. It's hard to tell, but... but Trying to figure out what's going to be his, his uh, end game here. He wants to find out if he's going to be sentenced to death before he sends Timothy. So that the Philippian, once he sends Timothy, he wants them to know whether Christ is going to be exalted by his life or by his death. 
That harkens back to uh, chapter 1, verse 20. I want to just read that to you again because this, he's referencing the same thing. In chapter 1, verse 20 of the same book, he says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And so literally, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking for us, I think, to hear Paul write about this impending potential, whether he's going to live or to die. He's like, I'm, I'm going to keep Timothy here just till we find out what's going to go on so that I can send you the right news, right? I want you guys to know, Christ, he's already said, Christ is going to be exalted whether I live or whether I die. And we, we spent a lot of time on how that's even possible, so I'm not going to get back into that. But the reality is he, he just wants to make sure the right news goes with them. So he's going to get his sentence and he's going to say, okay, Timothy, let the Philippians know either I'll be along shortly because they're not killing me now or Christ is going to be exalted because I'm going to die well for his glory. Now I know for some of you, that's still hard to grasp. And, and, and if you haven't been here uh, for the past weeks coming up to this, and that whole idea of, of Paul saying, well, Christ is going to be exalted either uh, whether I live or die, if that's hard for you to understand, I would just encourage you to, to go back to the audio from the last few weeks and, and catch up because uh, understanding that, how that's possible, why he can talk that way, and why it's, it's not, as some have claimed, unsound theology on Paul's part, um, <laughs> understanding that is kind of the key to unlocking the rest of this book and why it's beautiful. Why a book written from a guy in a jail cell waiting a death sentence can be the most beautiful treatise potentially in all of literary history on joy. Like understanding that is going to be the key to unlock all of that beauty. Okay, so I, I, I hope those of us that have been here have gotten that and, and we're building upon that. If you're not there with us yet, I would encourage you to catch up because not only is it the key to understanding this book, but much of how we navigate ourselves through life as a Christian isn't going to make sense if we can't say with Paul, whether I live or whether I die, Christ is going to be exalted. It's real important that we get that. And even if we're not there really in a practical, like functional way in our heart, we at least need to know that that's where I want to be striving for and asking for God's grace to think more that way. That whatever I do, wherever I'm headed, whatever it looks like for me, the exaltation of Christ is my high priority. And we see that holding true uh, for Paul, okay? Um, verse 24 says, And I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. So verse 24, this and verse 19 shows how utterly dependent Paul was upon Jesus during his time of persecution and difficulty. So that's, I just want to read you 19 again. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. It also says in 24, And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. We, just, we see this language over and over and over again. And you can be like, well, yeah, this guy was a pastor, right? That's what pastors do. They say in the Lord a lot, right? And, and they say Jesus a lot, right? Like that's just pastor talk. No, like, like what this is, is it's, it's opening up and it's letting you see just in something simple, right? I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. And he's saying, uh, I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So that's two different situations. First of all, sending Timothy. Secondly, him coming. So first, sending Timothy. He understands that his hope needs to be in the Lord Jesus for the ability to send Timothy. Yeah, you know, I guess that makes sense to some degree from 
what we talked about, the fact that the, the, the journey might be difficult and all of that, but ultimately we also see that even, even in somewhat insignificant looking things, Paul understands that it all comes down to whether or not it is permitted by the Lord Jesus to happen, right? He, his dependence fully and completely on any plan he's about to make or try to execute, he knows if, if there's any hope of that going down, it's going to be by the power of God. It's going to be by the help of the Lord Jesus. He also knows his current situation. Paul was one of the best debaters and arguers around. He had a very, very legal, very systematic mind. So we, we don't see him here saying, uh, hopefully I'll come and see you soon if I do a good job when I get in front of the Caesars here, if I, if I do a good job making my defense, right? We see him saying, my hope and trust is in the Lord. I got one shot. I'm going to go stand in front of these guys. They're either going to say, you're dying or you can go, right? There's, it's going to go one of two ways. And, and what's going to determine that? What, where is his hope placed when it comes to that fork in the road? His hope is in the Lord. I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming to you shortly. His trust is in Jesus alone. What does that mean for you, friend? Where is your trust? What are you up against? And what, what does it look like when you think through it? When you, see, uh, when you see something blocking your path, when you've, got, when you've got trouble and tribulation and trial, when you've got difficulty going on in your life, where, where does your mind go? Do you, do you talk like this? And, and not in a cliche way, but like up out of your heart is the true way that you perceive your shot at making it through whatever you're going through is your trust in the Lord. If I'm honest, sometimes in my life it's taken things getting really, really bad for me to get to the place where my trust was in the Lord because I'm prone to like handle it if I can handle it. Does that make sense to any of you? Any, any of you guys handlers, problem solvers, right? Like, so my first tendency typically is there's a problem. It's like, okay, first tendency is not to say, hey, Lord, help me, or, or really realize that um, since the breath in my lungs belongs to God, like he's in this mix anyway, but uh, in whatever gifts or talents I may think I have that's going to help me solve this problem came from him anyways, and so ultimately he's in it. But, but a lot of times I, f- I forget that. I don't, I don't go first to... Okay, my, my, my only shot here is, is if, if God shows up and helps me, right? Like, a lot of times I think I, I got it. I can, I can handle this one. Uh, and sometimes when it gets really tough, it reminds me that my trust and hope is in the Lord. My, my great hope and my prayer to God is that what he would continue to shape and mold me and make me more prone that my last option when it gets really hard is not my trust is in the Lord, but my first option, no matter what is going on, is my trust is in the Lord. Whether it's a good day, an easy day, a hard day, a rough day, whether everything's going right or everything's going wrong, right? That at the front of my consciousness all the time is this idea, my trust, my only chance, my hope, my shot, it's all in the Lord. It's riding on him. He is the strength that I need. He is the only reason, really, to hope for anything to go well and not fall apart. That's where Paul's hope was. Uh, That's convicting and helpful for me. I hope it is for you. Verses 25 through 30 begin to describe a guy named Epaphroditus. I can't decide if that's a tough name or not. Um, It's long and kind of ancient sounding, but it's 
It's a little frilly, uh, if I'm being honest. I tend to like ancient names, but uh, I, don't, I don't know about this guy. If all I had was his name, I don't think I'd like him. But I've got more, and so I think I do like him. Um, so verse 25 kind of starts this series, but we're going to come back to that. that we're going to kind of end with that. So let's go to verses 26 through 28, see what that says, okay? Um, because he was longing for you, again, so now he's, he is talking about Epaphroditus. Because he was longing for you, the Philippian church, he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Okay? Verse 26 through 28 is more evidence of the gospel making real love possible among the people of God. Okay, how do I see that? First of all, Epaphroditus almost dies from sickness. This very well could have been a result of the journey to Paul. We don't know that for sure, but it's, it, it's a high likelihood. Uh, so he almost dies from sickness, but is more concerned that his church family is distressed about his condition than the fact that he almost died of sickness in the service of Christ and coming to be a representative of his church to Pastor Paul. Okay, so what are we seeing here? We're seeing that wise sage Olaf's words come back. Love is being more concerned with the needs of someone else than your own. This, I mean, <laughs> this brother's all worried because his church family that loves him is worried. But he almost just died of sickness. What else do we see? Paul obviously really loves Epaphroditus because he considers God's mercy to him as a mercy to Paul himself. What is, so how does he say that? So uh, verse 27, For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. And so clearly there is relationship and love between these two leaders, right? Uh, he, he loves him because God's mercy to Epaphroditus that he didn't die in that sickness Paul considers that as an equal mercy to him because he cares for this guy and it would have caused an increased uh, level of sorrow in his life if, if something had happened to him. And so there's the, we, we see this idea bore out as Paul's just, Paul's just talking about where he's at, right? He's, he's close to this Philippian church. He's, he feels, it feels a little bit more relaxed in this letter as he's talking to them. Um, than it does maybe in some of his correspondence with some of the other churches. And, and, and he's just talking about how he feels. He's working through his feelings. And he's like, man, I, I was so glad that that sickness didn't take him because that, that would have crushed me. God's mercy to him was a mercy to me. And I think that echoes this idea that we are called as God's people to mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. There's a connectedness that happens when the gospel changes us. That's what I'm trying to point out to you, and it's evident all through this passage. Really, it mattered as much to Paul that Epaphroditus recovered uh, that it did to Epaphroditus. Okay, so let's transpose that upon us, friends. Do we consider God's mercy to one another as a mercy to us? Are we so invested in each other's lives that when God is good to one of us, we literally feel he's been good to all of us? Do we mourn with each other to the point when, when we're struggling? Are we connected as we should be, as the gospel can? Are our lives interwoven to the point that when one of us is struggling, we, we literally feel the weight of that? Not in some, oh, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll pray for you type of way, but in like, I'm praying for them because I feel like I'm praying for me. 
because we're so connected because of the blood of Christ and because of the power of the gospel. I am so much family with that person. I have such an incredible love and affection for them that if, if they make it, I'm going to feel like I made it. And if they're struggling, I, f- I feel that I'm struggling. That's, that's what Paul's describing here. We see real love in action right here in these verses. The church, the Philippians, obviously loved both of these men because they sent one of their leaders. Some commentators think that Epaphroditus was was potentially an elder in the Philippian church. We don't know that for sure, uh, but that is a possibility. But the church both loved, loved both of these guys because they sent one of their leaders on a dangerous journey to bless Paul. Uh, what Paul says here in, in the last verse, that might seem a little funny to you, verse 30, he says um, that, that Epaphroditus was risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Essentially what he's saying is that the, the, the Philippians, they had a gift for Paul, right? Because remember, uh, Paul's imprisonment was more like house arrest than it was being down in a dungeon. This, this Roman imprisonment was, uh, it was a lot like house arrest, but Paul was still responsible for his own needs. So it wasn't like you got three squares a day from the Praetorian Guard, and you know, they came back and throw you the, the, the prison loaf. Um, it, it wasn't one of those deals. So he, he still had to come up with a way to survive while he was awaiting this trial. And so one of those ways was that the churches that found out about his condition sent messengers with provision uh, because they loved him and wanted to help him. And so clearly the Philippian church loved Paul. Um, and, and, and they also loved, we, we see pretty clearly that they loved Epaphroditus, right? They were beside themselves with concern um, because he was sick, right? Totally just torn up about it. So... We see that Paul loves Epaphroditus a ton. We see Epaphroditus really loves his church family. We see that church family really loves both Pastor Paul and this guy that they sent, this leader from among them. And we also see that Paul really, really loves the Philippian church because he sends Epaphroditus quickly because he wants them to be able to rejoice in his safety. And it says he is bothered by the fact that they are worrying about him. That's what it says here uh, in verse 28. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Remember how Epaphroditus, his biggest concern when he almost died from sickness was that his church family was freaking out, right? He, he knew they were worried and concerned about him and that was grieving him more than the fact that he almost died from sickness. Paul also, you know, he's, he's got Timothy there, but he's got this one other solid brother that's shown up. I'm sure it's, it's lonely and like having another friend there is nice, having someone else to kind of have his back. Uh, but, but he sends Epaphroditus back quickly because like, you know what, first of all, you know, Epaphroditus probably carried this letter back to the Philippians, but also he wanted to get him back to that church family that was missing him and cared about him uh, so that they could know he was all right. That was a concern for Paul. So Paul loves the church, the church loves Paul. Epaphroditus loves the church, the church loves Epaphroditus. Paul and Epaphroditus love each other, and everybody loves Timothy. We see the love of God in real, vibrant ways, just as Paul's pouring out kind of his emotional state and talking about what he's going through here. As he describes it, you see the real, true, gospel, God-infused kind of love between all of the the kind of the characters here. Uh, And I think it's really instructive for us. All right, verses uh, 29 and 30. Receive him then in the Lord, still talking about Epaphroditus, receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. These two verses, I think, beg the question, who do we hold in high regard? 
Who is it that we respect most? Who is it that we try to emulate? Who are our heroes? Who do we think is successful? Who is it for most of our culture? I would argue that probably it's it's high-level athletes, oftentimes are respected, people desire to be emulated, people consider them heroes, uh, the wealthy, right? You got, look at your Facebook feed, there's, there's 15 different guys on there with, you know, half of them with rented exotic cars trying to sell you, you know, some service to teach you how to get exotic cars, and, and, and you, look at the, you look at the comments, man, you look at the interaction with that thing, there, there are hundreds of thousands of people biting that bait. Oh, wow, this guy's washing his Bugatti. I want to be like him, right? Like, that's my hero. Um, and, and people just eat that stuff up. So we, we tend to idolize and emulate. We tend to give respect and honor and listen to the wealthy, people that we think are wealthy. The famous, people that have notoriety, tend to get respect in our culture uh, and, and honor. Uh, actors and musicians, people that are just really good at their craft, oftentimes get respect and people want to be like them. Oftentimes that is tied to wealth as well. Uh, let me just say this. It, it is not bad to respect those who do well with the gifts God has given them. Okay, did you hear me say that? It's important. It is not bad to respect those who do well with the gifts God has given them. But we should hold in high regard and honor those who lay down their lives for the work of Christ and the building of his kingdom. That's what Paul says here. This guy almost died for the work of Christ. He deserves your respect. You, you want to look up to somebody? Look up to somebody that's willing to almost die to come visit me, make sure I don't die in prison, and to get a letter back to you. Because he knows that that's going to help the furthering of God's kingdom and the moving forward of the gospel. A guy who considers his life as not as important as getting gospel mission done. That's the kind of person you want to look up to. That's the kind of person that deserves your respect. That's the kind of person you should seek to emulate. Verse 25. That brings us back to the beginning here where uh, Paul switches gears and begins to describe Epaphroditus. Verse 25. I, th I think we see something profound in the way Paul describes him. Uh, he uses three analogies that normally one person cannot fulfill. Let's, let's look at it again quickly. Uh, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. So what does he call him? He calls him his brother, his fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Uh, and and these, are, these are three pretty drastically different things and very difficult for one person, I think, to fulfill in the life of another. Uh, so what, what, what do we see there? Well, I, first of all, he calls him his brother. Um, I, I think, you know, sometimes what is being said is very gender specific, but I think this, being a brother to somebody, you can also accomplish this by being a sister to somebody. It's what, what is that relationship like? Well, a brother or a sister in the Lord is someone that's, they're super close. They're super close to you. They're someone who knows everything about you, and it's someone that you know you have a bond with for life. There's, there, is a, there is a covenant level connection there. Um, they, they are closer than a friend, and they're a precious gift to you. They're someone that, it's, it's, like, that, it's like that corny, um, you know, the inspirational posters, like someone that knows all your faults but loves you anyways. But like, that's real, right? Because that's kind of hard to find. First of all, someone that no, actually knows you that well, but then someone that like, knows you that well and loves you. And you, and you know they're with you, man. That's, that's a brother or sister in the Lord. They, they fulfill that. There's a, 
There's a, there's a safety that comes in having somebody like that in your life. Paul says Epaphroditus is like that. He calls him a fellow worker in the Lord. What, what's that like? That's, that's, that's someone that you know is going to burn the midnight oil, man. They will sacrifice whatever it takes to accomplish the goal or get the job done. You don't have to ask. If you're doing something for Jesus, you know that they will be with you. And treating that task, whatever you're tackling, they're going to treat it as much as their responsibility as it is yours. If you're in it, they're going to be in it. That's a fellow worker in the Lord, someone you know, man. Jesus said we got to dig this ditch. It's five miles long. Give me a shovel. If you're in there, I'm in there, man. A fellow worker in the Lord. So he says he's a brother to him. He's a fellow worker, but also he calls him a fellow soldier. What's a, what's a fellow soldier in the Lord? That's someone that has proven. They have proven that when the going gets tough, they have your back. No matter what the battle or struggle, they have the type of ferocious loyalty and spiritual toughness that allows you to know without a doubt, if you are in a fight, they are in a fight. That's rare. It's rare to have somebody you can call a fellow soldier that you know. If it's going down, I don't need to look around to know if they're there. I know. Their sword's drawn, and they're ready to roll. They're with me, a fellow soldier. Well, what if the battle gets really difficult? Then I'm really sure they're there. I don't have to wonder if they're going to be gone. A fellow soldier in the Lord. So he calls him a, 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 a brother in the Lord, a fellow worker in the Lord, and a, and a fellow soldier. Here's, here's, what, here's why this, I think, is profound. You could say, well, Paul's just waxing poetic. I don't think so. Because these are three drastically different roles. They're, they're, they're very different things in the life. Most people have a, a hopefully have a, a brother or sister in the Lord. Maybe you don't. I, I pray that you, you will. I pray that you'll ask God for that precious gift. A lot of people have fellow workers in the Lord that maybe isn't a brother in the Lord to them, but there's somebody that they can count on. Like, well, they'll, they're, they're there to get the job done. They're on gospel mission. I think even less people have someone that's a fellow soldier in the Lord, someone that they, they know, man. Doesn't matter how bad this gets. This person's going to, they're ride or die. They're in this with me. They're ready to fight. If I'm fighting, they're fighting. A lot of times people have those as different people in their life, but it's very, very difficult to find someone that can fulfill all three. And, and the question is, how could one man be all of this for another? How could he do that? It seems impossible. And I would contend that it is impossible, except Epaphroditus had the Spirit of Christ at work in him. Because I see that Jesus embodied and walked in the power of all three of these relationships. He was a brother, he was a fellow workman, and he was also a fellow soldier. Why do I say that? First of all, Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. That's not the only time he referenced himself that way, but Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He is the firstborn among us. He does, in, in, a, in, in, a, in a really beautiful and somewhat mysterious way, he can relate to us like the Father does, but he also relates to us in that really close brotherly way. Uh, way and so that's that's a great comfort. He he can do that. Jesus is that for us. In John nine four, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, "We must work the works of Him who sent me." Get that? Jesus in John nine four didn't say, "You must work the works of He who sent me." He said, "We must work the works of He who sent me." We got to do that quick and we got to go hard because daylight only happens so long, and we got to work while it's daytime. 
So what was that? Jesus was inviting them in. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not just throwing this on you guys. Let's do this. You guys come with me. We need to do what it is God's called us to do. And so he wasn't afraid to roll his sleeves up and be in the midst of the work of the kingdom. You guys, you guys seen that graphic that says the difference between a boss and a leader? The boss is sitting back on the, on the thing, driving a whip. And then you got a leader who's out in front of everybody else, pulling on whatever they're pulling, man. Jesus is that kind of leader. He's a fellow worker. He's the king of everything, but he'll get in there with you. He's in the process, man. He's not afraid to get dirty with you. Was Jesus a fellow soldier? (laughs) When it came time for the most important battle in all of history, the throwdown of the ages against Satan, sin, and death, Jesus stepped in between us and the enemy, and he fought the fight we couldn't win and he couldn't lose. He is absolutely the brother that we need. He is absolutely that fellow workman, and he is absolutely that fellow soldier. He's not leaving. He's not running. He's already proved that when the battle gets hard, he will stand in there, and he will fight for us, and he's promised to keep on doing it. He's with us now, and he's going to be with us forever. He said, yes, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, but lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. He's not going anywhere. He's going to stand in with us. He's going to be that brother that loves us. He's going to be that workman that is toiling with us to accomplish gospel mission. And when a fight comes up, guess what? He's first one to the line, ready to go. He fought that cosmic battle against sin and death, and he won. Why did he have to do that? It's It's because we picked a fight we couldn't win. You guys ever, you guys ever seen that before? I don't, I don't know if Ryan's in here. He won't mind. Um, <laughs> he, we look different. People say that, right? Um, we, our, our frame is different. I am large and Nordic, and I think he's more kind of Native American in his frame. He's, he's wiry. Don't, don't mistake it, though. Uh, the, the guy can still scrap. But when we were, when we were young, he was, he was little, and... Uh, there, there was a time or two when, when he picked a fight because he knew <laughs> that uh, I wouldn't let him get beat up. Now, on the flip side, I will say this. A bunch of guys chased me home one day, and Ryan had a wicked arm, and he made an ice ball, man. These guys were chasing me, and I was a fat kid, so I'm huffing like I was not going to make it. These guys were going to catch me, and I was going to get a beat down. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to make it. And the guy that was closest to me, man, he like made an ice ball, and he beeline came over from the side, and he chucked that thing, dude, so hard. He, and this ice ball like just smoked this guy in the ear. It like impacted into his ear. Guy dropped to the ground. He was crying and stuff. So anyways, I don't know. That didn't have anything to do with anything other than I'm saying um, we, we picked a fight that we couldn't win. We were the ones that caused the problem. We were the ones that stepped outside of God's benevolent laws and boundaries. We were the one that chose, you know what, um, yeah, God said this, but, but I think I have a better way. Every single one of us are a sinner by nature and choice. From the time our first parents chose to listen to the deceiver instead of the, the holy one, from that point on, we've been sinners by nature and choice. All of us have suffered the effects of sin. None of us is perfect, and none of us had a way to get ourselves back to a place where we could stand in the magnificent holiness of a perfect God and not be cast away. That's why Jesus came. He came to fight the fight we couldn't win. But thank God he couldn't lose it. 
He was the perfect one. He lived a perfect life. That's why he was able to step in and to be the sacrificing atonement, that final sacrifice where the justice and the wrath of God could be satisfied at the very same time the love and mercy of God was satisfied. At the cross of Christ, all that we needed was accomplished. He died for our sins, atoned for our sins, and three days later, the Bible says, just like he said, he rose from the grave. That stone rolled away from the tomb, and our victorious champion came forth. And it is, the Bible says clearly that today, what determines whether or not you or I are going to be in relationship with our perfect Father is whether or not we can trust in what Jesus did. Listen, friend, you are constantly inundated with a lie. That lie is that God is going to accept or reject you based on how much good or bad you can do. Every Every possible way the forces of darkness in this world can get that lie to people, they will. And they will reinforce it from every angle to try to get you to believe this is about what you do. Now, to be sure, once the grace of God comes and changes our hearts, the great hope is and the normative pattern is that our desire changes and we begin then to do more good things and less bad things, but it's not because we're getting God to love us or we're, we're trying to accomplish our own salvation. We're doing those things because God has already loved us and has accomplished our salvation. And that, that changes everything. It makes it from a begrudging thing that we're always trying to earn, but we're never really sure to this, this beautiful satisfaction and coming that comes in knowing that, that the fight is, is over, the battle is won, the work is finished, and that we can enjoy uninhibited relationship with the God of the universe. And that makes me want to serve him. And it makes me love him. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. That's what it looks like, friends. But I'm thankful that Jesus is that good brother. He is that fellow workman. And he's also that soldier that fights for us. May we be a people who love each other with the true love that God supplies. May we be a people who show the world the beauty of living as God's family. And may we be a people empowered by the spirit of our Savior King Jesus to help and serve each other. May all this be for our good and God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for the unfiltered emotion of this passage of Scripture. We can see the Apostle Paul working through these struggles, and we see that his hope is in you. Lord, I thank you uh, for these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, that were companions to Paul. And I thank you for the, the visible love, the real, true, authentic gospel love between all of them and between the church at Philippi. I thank you, God, that it is vibrantly uh, clear from these verses that there was this sacrificial beautiful Christ kind of love between all of these people. That they, they deeply cared more about the needs of one another than they cared about their own needs. God, please anoint us to love that way. Lord, we see these things, and, and, and even when we're, we're, right now, like, we're in, we're in a gathering of your people, God, and we're considering these things, and we agree with them academically, but Lord, this is hard to walk out. This is difficult to follow through on. Please help us, anoint us, Lord. We need the help of your spirit. God, please help us to be brothers and sisters in Christ to each other in a real way. People that are there, people that know each other really, that get behind the masks, but, but don't judge harshly. 
but are with each other. Let, I ask God that your church would rise in confidence as people love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ in a real and vibrant way. God, help us to be fellow workmen. Lord, may we be confident in one another's resolve that if there's a job to be done for Jesus, that we're going to be there and we're going to get it done. Thank you, Lord. We're never going to rely on our own strength to accomplish anything you've called us to do. But God, there is, there is a strength that comes in knowing you have fellow workmen to your right and to your left that are just as committed as you are to get the gospel forward, to do whatever it takes to make sure the mission gets done. Thank you for fellow workmen. Help us to be that for one another. And God, by the spirit and power of Christ, may we be fellow soldiers. May we be soldiers standing side by side with one another. May there be confidence to know that nobody's fighting alone. But because of the love that you've woven between us by the power of your gospel and the work of your spirit, Lord, nobody has to be in a battle. Nobody has to look around and think that they're, they're fighting alone. I thank you, God, that You've given us all the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. You've given us armor that we can suit up and we don't use that just to defend ourselves against the schemes of the enemy, but so we can step in and help defend one another. May we be a faithful army, God. May we be fellow soldiers and may all of us be strengthened and encouraged by these things. All of those take the power of the spirit of Christ and so we plead for that today, Lord. We know we need your anointing. We won't accomplish any of this on our own. But God, may you be glorified in the way we love and serve each other, in the way we fight for each other. Lord, make, make sure, please, by the power of your spirit, that we, we see the enemy for who he is. May we never stand together in opposition and fighting people, Lord, but may we always see who our true enemy is. May we stand against sin and death with ferocious loyalty for one another and with love for you. We love you, Lord. Please be glorified in these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.